Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. In your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 13, and we're going to go through chapter 2, verse 3. These are the words of God. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask you today that you would instill in us the truth of your word. The truth of your word and the truth that your word alone endures forever. Instill in in us this truth so deeply that, that, Father, we would joyfully measure our lives according to to your plumb line, according to your word. Help us to see not only what is right and what is wrong, but also why it is so. God, we trust you. We rest in you. We we long to understand your ways and your character and your nature. Finally, Lord, we ask for grace as we learn your ways. And we ask, Lord, for grace as we also unlearn our ways. We pray all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Over 70 years ago now, it's kind of staggering to think about this, but over 70 years ago, C.S. Lewis wrote a book entitled The Abolition of Man. And although it's a small book by its word count, it's quite a large book when it comes to its depth, when it comes to, to the content of the book. In the book, Lewis makes the case for man's need of an objective moral reality, an absolute morality. 
This is a morality that is not based on mere opinions. It's a morality that's not based on our personal ideals, uh, nor even our most basic instincts. It's not where we get our morality. And while establishing the case in the book, Lewis writes that to obey instinct is like telling us to obey people. To obey instinct is like to obey people. Uh, People say different things. So do instincts. Our instincts are at war. Now, uh, it's a bit more of a crass version of this, but we're all familiar with with our modern day saying, right? Opinions are like, okay, moving on, right? Everybody else has one, right? We don't trust our instincts because instincts are like people. All of those things vary. We have different things. Early in the book, Lewis defines instinct as an unreflective or spontaneous impulse that's widely felt by the members of a given species. And immediately after giving his definition, he asks what I believe is a question for the ages. It's a question that I believe that the world needs to be asked or to ask ask itself. It's a question that I believe the church needs to ask herself on a regular basis. And that question is this. That question is, in what way does instinct help us to find real value? In what way does instinct help us to find real value? Or maybe we would ask the question slightly different. Maybe it would go something like this. In what way do our instincts, our opinions, our personal ideas determine whether something is right or wrong? In what way does that work? The answer, of course, is that it doesn't. Instinct doesn't. Our opinions don't. In fact, they can't. Value must come, right and wrong, must come from outside of ourselves. It must be, as we say in our culture today, it must be objective. Otherwise, it's just your opinion versus mine. And what happens? We devolve into this place where everybody is simply doing what is right in their own eyes. It's just your opinion versus mine, and there's a problem in that. Only through objective value could we determine whether or not our instincts are pure, whether or not our ideas uh, or our opinions are uh, redeemable, whether or not all of these things, whether good or bad, need to be just laid on the altar. That's the only way that we're going to discover this or find this out is if we have an absolute morality. This is why, in my opinion, uh, C.S. Lewis prophetically warns uh, 70 years ago, mind you, He warned 70 years ago that if we do not have an absolute morality, if we're just living by our own thing, the natural result or the only result will be, in fact, the abolition of man. It will be the end of man. We're facing this problem, and I know that you know this, but we're facing this problem in America today. Every one of us wants to do what is right in our own eyes. We just, we want to. And, and listen, I know that this is, I know that some of these things can be sharp at times, but the church is not always doing better. And she should be. We should be. We should not be a people that just say, well, I'm doing it my way because I like my way. Right? I mean, that is the way of a four-year-old. Trust me, I have them. Right? That's the way of a four-year-old, but it shouldn't be the way of God's people. But in America right now, everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. And then scripture says this. Jesus himself said this prophetic word. It's just an amazing thing. He said, because lawlessness will abound, connect these two, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. It doesn't take a neutral party to recognize that love in our country has grown cold. Amen? Love has grown cold, but it will take a revelation of God to understand why it has grown cold. 
It will take a revelation of God to understand that lawlessness is at its root. And it's not that you aren't living according to your own personal law. It's that the culture is not living according to God's law, God's standard. Genuine love, whether we understand this or not, uh, is and always will be connected to our adherence to God's law. Genuine love is connected to our adherence to God's law. In our text today, Peter shares with us uh, what should be a foundational truth for every Christian, although, uh, although I'm not sure it is. Here's what he says again. All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And then he says, and this was the word which was preached to you. Not our opinions, not our ideas, not our, not, not our instincts. Those things fade, don't they? They fade. They are like flower. They are like the grass because that belongs to the flesh. That will burn up. But God's word will endure forever. When it comes to right and wrong, good and evil, and absolute morality, God's word has got to be our go-to, church. It's our go-to even when the culture says otherwise. Listen, I know that this will speak to some of you. It is our go-to even when a particular sin comes home to roost in our own families. It, do, it doesn't matter that your daughter is experiencing what she's experiencing. It doesn't matter that your son has chosen an alternate lifestyle. Sin is sin, and God is the standard bearer. God's word is our standard bearer. God's word is our go-to, even if the law of the land says otherwise, and yes, even if there's a majority opinion passed down by a higher court. I'm thinking things like Roe versus Wade. In the intro uh, to Peter's letter, he addresses his readers as those scattered among Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And there's an importance to this. Every word in the scripture is vital. Okay, every word is vital. And, and so he addresses who he's writing to. But when you think of the broad swath of people that he is writing to, you realize something else is going on. Uh, something else is going on in this, what scholars call an encyclical letter. Peter's letter does not just go to one group of people. That's why he doesn't say to the church in Rome. But he says to those scattered in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. You couldn't get a more diverse group of followers of Jesus in this. And so when we understand that, and when we understand it's a, an encyclical letter, we also understand that the wording of the text... Uh, uh, will we'll need to be interpreted through that lens. We have to understand he's not talking to the diaspora or the Jews who were scattered from Jerusalem. He's not talking about uh, just Jewish converts. He's not talking to just Gentile converts. He's talking to all of them. And it comes into play immediately uh, when we hear him address them as aliens. Our interpretation does not interpret these are aliens from Jerusalem. These are aliens in this world, okay? We, we are aliens. How many of you know this? We are aliens. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm an alien. Come on, say, say it with a quirky uh, whatever, flair to it, right? I'm an alien because they already think you are anyway. So, especially if it's your wife. So anyway, so he addresses them as aliens, right? And this word, alien, can be translated as pilgrim, as sojourner, or even foreigner. And, and it's up to you which word you pick. Whatever will help you remember this idea, uh, we're good with. But 
Uh, although we understand the term alien or foreigner or sojourner through its ge- in its geographical sense, we need to begin to understand alien through its moral sense as well. Okay, Not just through its geographical sense, but also through its moral sense. What I mean is this, that we are pilgrims in a foreign land. This is not our home. Amen? But we are also pilgrims living counter to our culture. Or we should be. We are, we are pilgrims living counter to our culture. We're a people that interpret whatever the world has to offer and whatever our instincts bring to bear. We interpret all of that through the enduring word of God. And we adhere to that higher law. We trust that higher law. Now, quick question. Is that easy all the time? You're not being loud enough. Is that easy all the time? No. No. Scripture does say that, that God's laws and God's ways are, are pleasing. They're a joy. But it doesn't mean it's a joy as you're walking through it. Right? Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Think about them obeying God even to the point of being thrown, thrown into the fiery furnace. The furnace is going to be lit up seven times hotter than it, than it normally would be. So hot that the, the guards that stood by to light the fire or to heat the fire up, they burnt up. And they were to go into that fire. It's a challenging thing to walk straight into a fire. Amen? It's a challenging thing to walk into the fire of life, being a Christian, the fire of our world, walking in there holding the standard. It's especially hard if we're going to walk into that and we're going to say things like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. It's going to be especially hard if we look at the world and we say, listen, it doesn't matter what happens. God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, mind you, that's not a lack of faith, the prayer that they prayed right there, the statement that they made. We will walk through that fire. God will deliver us. And even if he doesn't, we ain't bowing a knee to anybody else. That's going to be hard, church. But that's the kind of faith we are called to have. Now, it's hard for us, but there's another problem. There's probably a greater problem. And the problem that we face all the time, and that is, as being foreigners, it doesn't always sit well with the natives. Right? It doesn't sit well with the natives. We're geographical foreigners. We belong to a heavenly kingdom. We're moral foreigners. We don't fit the bill of the culture. For example... Whether you realize it or not, you as Christians in America are being censored. Wait a minute, Nathan. I think you're getting to, going too far with this. Now listen. Listen to me. We maintain our right to freedom of speech. But if we dare as foreigners to call sin, sin, guess what happens? It results in labeling. It results in us being labeled. Now, of course, the world thinks we're labeling them through calling out sin. But we're labeled. In this, we're called homophobic, we're called bigots, we're called judgmental, we're called unloving, or the worst offense for most Christians today is you're not being nice. <laughs> That's sad. But anyway, so, so we're labeled with these things, and it's the modern-day scarlet letter, right? We, we have a scarlet letter, and because that's the case, nobody wants anything to do with us. They push us into our church, you know, into our churches. They say, you guys can talk all the stuff you want to talk in there, but don't come into our world. And guess what is the result? What is the outcome? We remain silent in this situation. We remain silent in this situation. It's not censorship by, a, by fiat, at all. It's censorship via persecution. It's censorship out of a fear of reprisal. 
Now, I'll let the Spirit of God convict you and Him deal with you the way He wants to deal with you. But I will, be able, I will honestly tell you that I struggle in this area as well. I'm a relatively bold person by my nature. I, I, I'll just say what I think and, and, and I mean often most, yeah, I mean what I say, right? Um, sometimes it gets me in trouble. But when it comes to complete uh, complete strangers, complete foreigners, you know, people of the world, it is harder to be bold with them. It is harder to be bold with them. And, and here's the problem. It means that the world's censorship has worked. We've allowed them to tell us what we can and cannot say. And guess what? We do it under this weird guise that we're being true Christians. Well, I don't want to say that because I'm being loving. I need you to maul on this for a second. I don't want to say that because it wouldn't be nice. You've, you've fallen for the lie, church. You've fallen for the exact same lie that all of us, many of us, have fallen for. Is it loving to tell people that what they're doing is sin? Yes, as long as you're promoting a gospel that rescues them from it, right? I'm not advocating you walk out and just tell everybody all the things they're doing wrong. But what I am advocating for is that you actually do, that we actually do what Jesus has called us to do, which is to go into the world and call men and women to repentance and to faith in the only word that saves them, the word of Jesus Christ. The most covert approach to this particular silence, this particular censorship, is actually when we label somebody a hypocrite. When we're labeled a hypocrite ourselves or when we label somebody else a hypocrite. And I need you to just run this thought experiment with me, okay? So, so hypocrisy is a problem, right? Like maybe, it, hopefully it's not a problem here, right? Bunch of hypocrites. Anyway, so the, the point is, hopefully it's not a problem here, but hypocrisy is an issue. The Bible tells us that hypocrisy is the leaven of the Pharisees. Do you know why it's the leaven of the Pharisees? The Bible talks about leaven actually in two different ways. It talks about it in a positive way, but it, but it mainly talks about it in this negative sense, okay? And so if we're the leaven of the Pharisees, it's being put to us in a negative sense. And so if we're hypocrites, we're the leaven of the Pharisees, just a little bit of our hypocrisy, saying one thing but doing another, just a little bit of our hypocrisy ruins, that leaven ruins our witness. Did you know that? It ruins your witness because here's what happens at your workplace, here's what happens in your family, and sad, this is what's happening even in the church. When you, when you sin, but you have called somebody else's sin out, what's their first line of defense? What... What are you talking about? You do it too. You're a hypocrite, right? That's the thing. Okay, now I want to, I want to train you in something, and that is the fallacy uh, in the Latin called tu quo q. Say that with me. Tu quo q. Come on, say it. Tu quo q. I just love watching you guys say things. Anyway, it's, the, it's called the me too fallacy, okay? And what happens in the me too fallacy is that people believe that they can beat your argument by saying, it's the you too fallacy, it, it beat your argument by saying, but you do it too, but you do it too. Think about this for just a second. Let's say I'm cheating on my taxes, but you're cheating on your wife. Okay? I'm cheating on my taxes, but you're cheating on your wife. I'm not claiming that I'm doing something right. But let's say I come to you and I say, God does not like that. And your response is, yeah, but you're cheating on your taxes. I don't know how you'd know that unless you're an IRS agent. But, but you, say, you say, yeah, but you're cheating on your taxes. Quick question. Does that make your sin okay? 
No, it doesn't make your sin okay. And yet when your coworkers, yet when your family, yet when your church-going friends say, yeah, but you do it too, what happens? We, we get quiet. We sit back and we say, well, you got a point. I guess we shouldn't do anything. And so holiness is, is abandoned, right? Walking after God is abandoned because, well, well, I guess I do it too. You see, here's what we need to do. We need to listen to Jesus. And that is, we should worry about the log in our own eye. Amen? We should start with the log in our own eye. We should, we should file our taxes properly. Okay? So let's not cheat on our taxes. And then when that is the case, then we go to our neighbor and we say, God still doesn't like what you're doing. Okay? But you can call people out even in your hypocrisy. I just want you to know it might ruin your witness. It might ruin your witness. It's the leaven of the Pharisees in some ways. So we've got to be extremely careful when it comes to this kind of things. We are foreigners among disapproving natives. Add to that that we're not just called to be foreigners in this world. We're not called to just patiently wait for Jesus to return, minding our own business, live and let live. That's not our call. We're called to go make disciples of the foreigners. Okay, just think about that for a second. They don't like us because we're strange in our morals and in our, in our you know, place that we want to go. And then we're going to them and we're saying, and you need to be one of us too. This is challenging, isn't it? It's going to be challenging. As you know, we've been called to go and preach the gospel, the Great Commission, right? But remember all of the commission, just with me for a second. Remember the whole commission. Make disciples, not collect or gather already disciples. Okay? That's not what it is. It's make disciples. You know what you have to do to make disciples? Or you know who you make them from? The foreigners, the people of this world. So you're making disciples from people. You're baptizing those people, which means you're actually professing they need to die to themselves and come alive with Jesus Christ. And most people say, I do nothing wrong. I'm perfectly fine. Ain't nobody perfect. You hear this all the time, right? But we're still calling them to that. And then the final piece of the commission, teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. How many of you want to sign up to go teach the world to do it Jesus' way? Because it's not just repent. Repent and believe. Repent and trust and do it his way. Turn around. This is really challenging. We're geographical and moral pilgrims on a mission calling others to join us. This is never going to sit well with our world. But no matter what, God's word is our standard. If not... We have to remember Lewis's warning. It will be, church, and I'm not being melodramatic. It will, in fact, be the abolition of man. This is the very reason Jesus came in the gospel. Because the alternative is the end of man. But Jesus came to save men. Amen? The end is, the end is nigh, if you will, if we continue to, to move in our direction. But if we will trust in Jesus, if we will put our trust in him and rest in him, it changes everything. So today, uh, what I want you to see is knowing that in principle, God's word endures forever. I want to share with you how it endures forever. I want to share with you observations of how we live this out or how we accept that his word is our benchmark and how it, in fact, endures forever. The first thing that I want to show you is how we embrace God's word as our standard. And then number two, how we take it to the world. 
that part has two parts to it, and I'm going to get to it. So, number one, how do we embrace God's word? You can write this down if you're a note taker. We must prepare our minds for action. We embrace it by learning it. 1 Peter 1.13 Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you were to change careers, if you were to change careers uh, and to do something you've never done before, what would be maybe your first course of action? Would you not learn how to do the new career? Would you not go and, and try to prepare your mind for that new action? Well, this is the same thing that we're supposed to do concerning Christian morality. Our instincts have ruled us for long enough. Uh, we've been, they've been planted in us since we were born. This is no doubt why Peter says uh, that we have been redeemed because our feudal way of life was inherited from our forefathers. Remember again the context. He's not talking about just Jews. He's talking to Gentiles. Your feudal way of life was inherited from your forefathers. That being said, all of us have a feudal way of life that we live by. It's called our instincts. It's called our opinions. It's called our upbringing if it is unredeemed or immoral. Um, so this isn't just salvation from something. It's a salvation to something. God has given us his word and he has called us to live it out. From sin and death to the spirit and life. This is why John 14, 15, Jesus himself says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. In the scriptures, the word, word, the word, word, uh, is, refers to several different things. The word is, of course, Jesus himself, John 1, 1, and the word became flesh, right? So we've got a person in the word. The word is also the gospel that we were we proclaim it's the imperishable seed that Peter talks about in 1 Peter 1.23. But this is the part that we often want to shun in our we live by grace circles. We often want to shun that the word of God is also his written instruction or his commands to us as Christ followers. This, is, this comes from many passages, but Luke 11.28 says, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. You hear the word and you actually go out and do it. 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. By what do we grow in salvation? The word of God. By what do we grow in salvation? The word of God, the pure milk of the word of God. Titus, second, uh, or Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, Paul says it this way. He says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. How many of you know what scripture he's referring to in, uh, in his letter to Timothy? It's not the New Testament because it hadn't been written yet which means he's referring to the Old Testament. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is useful or profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. So, so much for unhitching, right? Because the reality is that we have so much to learn about how to live in righteousness according to God's word in the Old Testament. We have to prepare our minds for action. This is an ongoing submission of our instincts and our opinions to the ideas of God's word. 
Let me just speak to you candidly for just a second on this. This is why I stress so much that you, that you open your Bible or that you read your Bible. Why? Because it is what gives you training for righteousness. Now, is it boring at times? The book of Numbers? Yeah, sure. It's boring at times. Is it, is it hard to understand? Sure. Genesis to Revelation? Sure. It's, it's hard to understand at times. Do, do, we need, do we need commentaries? Do we need study helps? Do we need other Christian brothers and sisters? Do we need churches? Do we need pastors? Absolutely we do. But the only thing that's inspired and stands for itself is God's word, right? And why is that? Why is it so important that we believe that God's word stands alone and that your personal idea today or tomorrow might be waning and needs to be run through this word? Because opinions, you know what they're like. So the, the idea is we don't, we don't need to rest on everybody else. We need to rest on God's word. We need to do so. It's not always easy. It's not always fun at times, but maybe we just need to redefine fun. That's my opinion. So, number one, we are to prepare our minds for action. This is an ongoing submission. But number two, how do we take it to the world? Well, we act out our new learning. You're, you don't just get to... This, how many of you guys went to college? Show of hands. How many went to college? How many of you use that education? Is it less? I can't tell. Okay, so here's the deal. When you're studying God's word, when you're learning his word, you don't have the option to not use your education, okay? You don't get to go, well, I learned it. I'm not going to do it, but I learned it. That's, that's not the way this works, okay? We have to apply what we have learned. We have to act on this new learning. This is what many Christians would call living out the gospel or taking it into our world. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts. Notice it says former lusts. Who, who were you once in your life? The person who operated by your opinions and your ideas. But now you leave your former lusts behind. Every time I read that, I'm taken to 1 Corinthians 6.11, which says Paul lists this great number of sins that uh, governed humanity, right? All of these, you know, the, the fornicators and adulterers and homosexuals and all this stuff. And then he says this, he says, and such were some of you. You should underline that in your Bible. The argument today constantly comes up, can I be this and still be a Christian? Can I be that and still be a Christian? And Paul and Peter both say, these were your former lusts. These were your former ways of life. That's what you're supposed, you know that repentance means putting down your old self, right? Turning around, walking in a new and better direction, which is Jesus. You know that, right? So this is what we're called to do. So we have to turn this away. Uh, Peter goes on, which were yours in your ignorance. Now, you really want to make somebody mad as a foreigner among the natives. Tell them that those lusts are actually bad, their sin, and then tell them that they do what they do out of ignorance. I don't recommend it, but, but you'll make some people mad. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And I'm going to talk to holiness in just a second. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. 
And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, just a brief disclaimer, okay? Um, we're not working our way to God's favor. It's not what we're talking about. I'm, I'm actually not, if you're a non-believer in this room, I'm actually not talking to you. That sounds really mean, right? But I'm not talking to you. The church is for the redeemed. That's why people who say a church for people who don't like church or people who don't go to church, whatever, it just doesn't make sense. The church is for the church. That's the point. If an unbeliever comes in, they should say, they should see the works of God and walk away and say, truly, God is in that place. They should see that. But, uh, but I'm talking to Christians right now. I'm talking to you as believers. And, that, and so what I want to say to you is that you do not work for God's favor. But you do work from it. You do work from it. And any other teacher, any other pastor who has told you otherwise is selling you something. And it is a pitiful version of the gospel. Remember what... what Peter said in the beginning of this, he says, those of you who are working out your salvation in this life, he says, do so with fear and trembling while you're staying on earth. Do so in fear while on earth. Not afraid of God's crushing hand, but in reverence to him, we live in a life of obedience. So we're not doing this to earn God's favor. We're doing this from the place of God's favor. That's why Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, by the mercies of God, present your body as a living sacrifice. If you saved somebody, they were drowning in the water, and you saved somebody and drug them out, and, uh, and you revived them, and you breathed life into them again, and they got up, and their first reaction was, What'd you do that for? What would you say? be like, uh, you've obviously lost too much oxygen to your brain right now, right? Or if they looked at you and said, I didn't need any of your help. Or if they ran straight back in the water and started drowning again. Hopefully you would run after them again. But it would really be frustrating. Why is it that we think that's not frustrating to God? Why is it that we surrender our lives to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and then in view of mercy, we flip him the finger. We say, we'll do it our way. We're going to live life our way. And then when we're called out on it, the preacher's just being mean. That doesn't make any sense, church. We have been saved from drowning, from death to life. Do we not owe God everything? So to be told God wants you to walk this way should be the joy of every Christian's heart. It should be the joy of everyone who follows after Jesus. Because what we've learned in the gospel is that God redeemed us from our foolish way of living. And he set us on a higher place. He has set us on a firmer foundation. And he has called us to new life. And yet we miss it so often. So all of this is done in view of mercy. Number two, obedience means nonconformity to your former lusts, right? These are things which you once did, right? We've heard it twice now. Do not be conformed. I would maybe put it, do not be reconformed to this world because that's who you were, okay? And the third part, be holy. Now, I just want to say something about holiness to you for a second. Holiness does not mean Absolute perfection. 
Holiness does not mean absolute perfection. I believe that it is, uh, it is somewhere in holiness because God is holy, 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 and he is absolutely perfect. But when it says to be holy as I am holy, God is saying, I want you to be set apart like I am set apart. God has grace and knows that we will make plenty of mistakes. That's why the scripture says when you sin, confess your sins. And what will he do? He will be faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. To be holy as God is holy means that every day of our lives, we look at our life and say, God, I want to do it your way. Amen? I want to do it your way. I'm going to to follow you even if it's into a fire. I'm going to do it your way. Will you screw up? Yes, you will. All you have to do is look at your past. Will you screw up? Yes. Do you have to screw up? No. Spirit of God has been given to you. All things pertaining to life and godliness has been given to you. You can say no, but we often don't. But God has called us to repentance in those moments, and then he's called us back on the horse, right? Set apart. Walk after him. So we prepare our minds for action, then we act on that new learning. Um, Point number three. Proclaim the gospel. This is one aspect of how we live it out. And this is how we'll end. Peter is quoting a passage from Isaiah 40. The whole passage has to do with the proclamation of the gospel. If we truly believe that the grass withers and the flower fades, and that the word of God endures forever, including the gospel, if we believe this, then we understand what's at stake. It's either death has a final word, or death has no sting right? Either death has a final word or death has no sting. And we are born of that which is imperishable. Isaiah 40 says this. This is powerful. Isaiah 40, starting at verse 3 and going through 10. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Sounds like the prophetic of John the Baptist. Verse 4, let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. This is, this is the leveling of out, out of all humanity. The proud will be brought low. The humble God will raise up. And then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, this is the voice of God, call out. This is the prophet. Then I answered, what shall I call out? God said this, All flesh is grass, and all of its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might. With him, with his arm ruling for him, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. The whole point of Isaiah and the whole quote of Peter from Isaiah is the declaration of the gospel to say to a world, your morality, your opinions, your ideas, your flesh, it's grass, it withers, it fades. You keep that up, abolition of man. But if you come to me, All you who are weary and heavy laden, if you come to me, I will show you rest. 
God has called us, church, to live by grace. Did you know that? To be saved by grace and to live by grace. But living by grace does not mean continuing to sin that grace might abound. Living by grace means that God has given us his precious promises. God has given us a higher way to live. And God has given us his spirit to empower us to do so. Living by grace does not mean Nathan gets to have it his way on earth, but I still get to go to heaven. That's not living by grace. That's living shunning God. That's living rejecting the one who bought me. We are called to so much more in this life. And so what we need to remember is we will fade, we will wither, we will fade. But God's word, and if it abides in us, if that seed is planted in us, it will absolutely endure forever. A couple closing remarks as the worship team comes up. When it comes to determining right and wrong, we are inundated with opinions, well-meaning ideas, and even our own basic instincts. But as Christians, we are a people whose morality, whose standards of what is right and wrong is determined or should be determined by God alone. We know, that this, we know that standard that standard because of his enduring word. If we didn't have the word, word of God, we wouldn't know what his standard is. We are not seeking the abolition of men. Instead, we're seeking the salvation of all. Remember, we are pilgrims, both geographical and moral, and we're on a mission to make as many pilgrims as we can. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.